The problem was not me, not dyslexia, not uh, learning differently. The problem was the way that those learning differences were treated in an environment built for the myth that we should all be the same. Hi, and welcome to School 2.0, conversations about education and everything else. Today's guest, Jonathan Mooney, is not normal. And that's a great thing. You see, Jonathan knows all too well what it's like to feel and to be told that you're not normal. Today, Jonathan is a successful author, speaker, entrepreneur, and activist for disability rights. But before that, he was a struggling kid in school, diagnosed with several learning disabilities, and told repeatedly that he wasn't normal, that he wouldn't be academic material. Not content to be a high school dropout, he worked his way into Brown University and got a degree in English literature. Now, I should stop here to say that Jonathan, as you'll see, really does not like the narrative that he overcame his disabilities. What he did was to learn to work with what he had to get the help that he needed. But not all people, of course, are lucky enough or have the wherewithal to do that. So at Brown, Jonathan met and befriended another student named David Cole, who himself was diagnosed with several learning disabilities. Together, they wrote a book called Learning Outside the Lines. It was a guide to college for people diagnosed with ADHD and other similar issues. It went on to do really well because it turns out it served a really large need. And since then, Jonathan has written another two books, the latest of which is called Normal Sucks. And that's the one we're going to talk about today. The book is written in a really personal style. It's an open letter to his three sons who in various ways all asked him, Dad, am I normal? And based on his history and his writing and thinking about these issues, he has a lot to say about it. So today we're going to talk about how and why schools have been built around a fairly artificial, restrictive version of normalcy, whether Jonathan thinks that schools have meaningfully improved in this area over the past decades, and what teachers and schools can do now with kids in your classroom who don't fit the proverbial mold. Really excited about this conversation with Jonathan Mooney. Jonathan Mooney, how are you today? All things considered, I'm doing I'm doing doing well. <laughs> All things considered, that's right. We're talking in December of 2020, so this is COVID nineteen season, and you're in Southern California, where you're getting the worst. Yeah, I'm in uh, I'm in beautiful Santa Monica, so we we may be on a shelter in place ordinance, but at least the sun is shining. Yeah, yeah. Well, I. I have to be honest with you, Jonathan. I'm super uh, excited that you that you came on my show. I sent you an email a while ago, not figuring that 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 you would respond. And uh, you've been an author that I've admired for a while. Uh, so I, I, this is the first interview, maybe where I'm just like legit nervous. <laughs> well, if, if anybody um, uh, out there trying to to raise awareness about the uh, tyranny of of normality and the uh, imperative for inclusion. Uh, I'm down with that mission. Well, very cool. Thank you. Um, and and that brings us perfectly into the book we're going to talk about. And we're not only going to talk about this book, uh, but we're gonna, this this is kind of the springboard. It's a book you recently wrote called Normal Sucks. And I'll say that I when I read it, I've read it twice now. Um, it brought me to tears because it's a very long, extended letter to your sons about what normal means and why you think the idea of normality is kind of problematic. So I'd like to start by reading the first few lines of the book, and that'll get us into what this book is, why you chose to write it as a personal essay to your sons, et cetera. So here's the first four lines. Sons, you've each asked me a question in different ways at different times, and I think for different reasons. It's the same question I've always feared, but always knew you would ask me one day. So what is the question that they asked you 
And why did that get you thinking about writing this extended answer to them? Well, the question is, uh, you know, are you normal? Uh, am I normal? And, um, you know, it's a question that I think uh, everybody at some point in their journey as a human being uh, asks themselves. Uh, for some of us, myself included, that question is, is forced upon us uh, by having experiences of being told that you're not normal uh, or that uh, normality is something you should aspire to. But beyond those folks who, for specific reasons like mine, given my uh, diagnoses with you know, learning differences and learning disabilities, uh, beyond that, it's a question that sort of looms over all of us. You know, Michel Foucault wrote, um, you know, the judges of normality are ever present everywhere. And each of us uh, are subject to their jurisprudence. Uh, it's a universal struggle to figure out uh, where do we fit in the herd? Uh, is the herd right? Um, are we wrong if we don't fit? And uh, my children, like any uh, child, uh, ask me that question because it's one of the fundamental foundational questions uh, one needs to ask to live uh, an authentic and successful life. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how early um, people will learn to kind of compare themselves to other people on different things. And I mean, schools especially, it's it's really, if the judges of normality are everywhere, it, they're, they're certainly everywhere in schools. Um, yeah, I, I have a four-year-old and a six-month-old at home right now. And, you know, I kind of know all the problems with normality that, that you speak of in the book. And yet I still can't help but kind of judge, okay, is is, is this kid doing what they should be doing at a certain age? Um, is there anything right with the idea of normality in that sense? Or, or, or is, is even things like, you know, judging people by whether they're developing quote unquote normally by age? Do you think that's also probably? Well, I mean, I, I resonate deeply with, uh, with that as the, the parent of three, um, who have, have said in those pediatrician meetings and, had the growth charts presented and the, the, um, the, the ASQ tests. tests. Did you ever have uh, to take those? Um, and to, to flush out the rest of Foucault's quote, the, the rest of his quote is, we are in the society of the teacher judge, the doctor judge, the social worker judge. And uh, those notions of uh, sorting uh, monitoring, um, judging based on those charts is deeply embedded in uh, multiple uh, professions, uh, institutional and academic knowledge sources, uh, and as a result gets embedded in us. Um, so I don't in any way judge uh, because, I, because I've done it um, using that notion of normal as a benchmark uh, or as a stand-in for okay, good, thriving, all the things that we aspire to for our children uh, as parents, um, our uh, students as teachers, you know, and our uh, clients as doctors. I think the, the, the challenge we, we come to is, is, is in the very notion of, you know, what a norm is, um, which by definition is a statistical fiction, 
Um, it's uh, an aggregate, uh, the average extrapolated to become the ideal. And those growth charts over time from 1900 to 2020 have changed. The norms on them have changed because of population uh, changes. Uh, and so using it as a way to, 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 to uh, a shorthand for uh, good, thriving, on the right path, I think is, is, is challenging. Um, now, are there uh, places in which those charts give us information? Sure, of course they do. Are there deviations from the statistical myth of normality uh, that they surface that we should be uh, concerned about and that we should then subsequently care for? Yeah, I think so. But I think the word normal, uh, because it's conflated, as Ian Hacking said, with good and right, um, is particularly dangerous. I think there's value in the concept of typical. I think there's value in averages and looking at distribution around averages. But that notion of normal, both as a fact in the world, but also as an ideal to aspire to, that's what makes it particularly dangerous. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I guess the way I like to think of it is um, normal, like you said, is a property of a group, a population. It's an average of a population, and the mistake is often to take that and see it as something that's in an individual. A norm can't be in an individual because it's just an aggregate from that population. Like I guess the way I explain it to my students is, we could average all of your heights together and find out the the normal height, and that normal height because it's a statistical average may not resemble any actual height in the room. It's entirely possible. The, the, the normal so, number of children for a family to have is 2.5. <laughs> I, I haven't seen 0.5 kid rolling around out there, you know? So uh, that, that's, exa that's exactly um, the danger in it. Um, and in its, uh, embedded in its very complex, you know, historical origin is the conflation of the average with the individual and the judgment of the normal uh, as a, a thing to not just aspire to, but as a thing to be. And, and in saying all that, it's really yeah. important uh, for me to, to reference the work of Leonard Davis, um, who's a disability uh, uh, scholar, theorist, literary critic, um, who wrote a profound book called Enforcing Normalcy, which really um, was, to my reading, one of the first sort of uh, explications um, of that term and its uh, dangerous use of, 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 of applying averages to uh, individuals opposed to large groups of data sets. And it's important to to, to celebrate the work of, of Leonard Davis and others who I think were really the forerunners in, in this conversation around normal as a, a tool for oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess it, it seems to me like your own backstory kind of primed you to think about these issues so that when your children asked you, am I normal? Uh, I'm sure there's a part of you that goes, Oh boy. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, so let's, so let's get into your story a little bit because it's, I mean, it's, it's very, it's fascinating, but it's, it's instructive to people. Um, you know, one fact about you, for instance, is that you learned to read when you were 12 
And that wasn't because no one tried to teach you. Um, it, so, so let's, let's go into kind of your, your backstory and what does this say about the idea of normal and the, the, the shortcomings of that idea? Well, the, the existential dread that, that was raised when my kids asked me, am I normal came directly from the fact that I, <laughs> I was told I was not normal. Um, and, um, I was told that in, you know, very specific, uh, you know, in clinical ways. Um, I, I was diagnosed with, um, a constellation of language based learning disabilities. Um, we can take issue with that word later, but that was the word used, uh, at the time. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's asterisk that because I do want to Absolutely. ask you about that. Um, word. Uh, and then I was diagnosed uh, a little bit later with a constellation of sort of behavioral slash executive functioning disorders, ADHD being, you know, top of the list. Um, and, uh, I experienced special education, uh, throughout most of my, uh, my, my K, uh, eight education at the very least, and then into high school, um, in, in a variety of different settings. And, you know, I was pretty deeply wounded by, um, the notion that my differences made me deficient. And then subsequently by uh, a set of, of institutional practices that were uh, designed to privilege uh, certain brains and bodies over others. Uh, and then at the same time designed to remediate the deviations from the middle of the statistical bell curve that I represented. Um, the former, you know, is really a form of institutionalized ableism in which uh, certain people are called smart, good, right, and other people aren't. Um, and the latter is, you know, a, a form of, uh, of sort of social violence against folks who don't fit, you know, to be made to fit which is frankly what the word normed means when you turn it into a, to an action to norm something is to make it fit, uh, make the, the square peg fit the round hole. Um, and that in the day to day of, of, um, of education, uh, hurts people deeply. And so from that experience of, of personally living this, not in the abstract, not like reading Foucault in the corner, you know, but like, like living it, um, emerged, you know, my 20 years uh, of being a professional, uh, and advocating, uh, for folks with atypical brains and bodies in multiple, in multiple mediums. Um, and that, that, that experience, uh, uh, is the heart of, you know, not just normal sucks, but really the heart of, of my kind of social mission on this earth. Yeah. And I mean, what's, what's really interesting or what will be really interesting to a lot of listeners, um, not that it's completely important, but the fact is that you did very well intellectually after high school, right? You went to Brown university, you co-wrote uh, one book and then you wrote two others um, so it's it's not that there wasn't stuff there in in your head waiting to come out. I think in a video I saw of you, you said something like, teachers would ask me to write things down, my ideas down, and I couldn't write my ideas down. 
but that that kind of led them to think I just didn't have ideas to write down. Um, so, I mean, looking back on it, what are the things that if you could go back and kind of tell your teachers um, certain things that, that they could use to help you flourish, what would those things be? Well, look, you know, uh, <laughs> nobody uh, learns much uh, chilling out with the janitor in the hallway, you know, <laughs> like that's just that's just not a, a good educational practice. Um, I spent a lot of time with, with the janitor in the hallway and, mm, yeah. and, and that gentleman and, and uh, those uh, custodian professionals over the years played a big role in, in, in uh, keeping me alive because they were kind. Um, and subsequently, I learned later in life, many of them grew up chilling out with the custodian in the hallway. Um, mm, you know, I would say yeah. that uh, uh, our narrow notion of what constitutes intelligence is the problem, not deviations from that notion. You know, I felt stupid. Um, I'm not alone in that because I had a brain that wasn't wired for reading. Uh, we know more than ever that, um, that, that, that the human brain was never wired for reading in the arc of human evolution. It's a very uh, new uh, tool or skill set. Um, Marianne Wolf's work is important and groundbreaking uh, in a book called uh, uh, Proust and the, uh, and the Squid uh, about how the human brain was never designed to read. Uh, but nonetheless, we have elevated that skill as the pinnacle of human intelligence. You know, the smart kid reads early, the smarter kid reads early and fast. And if you're not that kid, you find yourself chilling out with C-Spot Run in the Sparrow reading group, you know. <laughs> Which is the least fun book on the planet. So if you want to motivate you to read, them probably is a good one you know, anyway. D Dick and Jane at least has some sexual tension, you know. It's, it's a little bit more. Interesting. Uh, so I would say let's uh, let's understand that intelligence is not one thing, but many things. Let's uh, build uh, school experiences, learning experiences that value the uh, multifaceted nature of human excellence. Uh, let's uh, value the person who maybe struggles with reading, but instead can draw, talk, build, create, care for other human beings. Uh, those were the, really the problem. The problem was uh, not me, not dyslexia, uh, not uh, learning differently. The problem was the way that those learning differences were treated in an environment built for the myth that we should all be the same. Yeah. When was it that you um, kind of figured out that idea? Because that's a, that's a hard idea that doesn't dawn on a lot of people, unfortunately. It's that maybe it's not me, right? They're, they're saying it's me. There's something with me. But maybe it's just that I don't fit within this environment, and that's okay. So a, a lot of people uh, who are diagnosed with various disabilities, told they're not good in school, don't really get to a point where they, they kind of suss that out. So how did you get to a point where you did? You're, you're asking the, I think, the, the question, um, not, not as it pertains to my journey, uh, but really as it pertains to, to everyone who has find them, found themselves on the wrong side of normal to their journey. And, and not, not a journey that's about going to Brown or whatever, but a journey of healing, you know, a journey of, of um, feeling um, okay in the world, you know, and having something to contribute. Uh, I don't blame 
my old self. Um, I, and I certainly don't blame uh, people living it right now who uh, feel that they're the problem. And I think it's important for us to understand the relentless um, cultural channels in which that notion of your difference is the problem gets beamed into people's heads. You know, obviously on the school side, uh, we know the the, the practices, um, uh, the pedagogical experiences, the systems that reinforce that. Right? You know, on the cultural side, um, the representation of folks with cog- cognitive and physical differences in, in popular culture is reprehensible. Um, you know, if you want to signify somebody as a villain, give them a physical difference. We saw that even most recently with a, a new film that, that came out and rightfully was rebuked for its representation of folks who have atypical hands. Um, and then on the uh, professional side, you know, there are entire edifices of knowledge out there that uh, are about how if you deviate from the myth of normal, there's a problem with you. I mean, the most popular course in uh, uh, on campuses often is abnormal psychology. I mean, the the, <laughs> the word says it all, right? So there's a tidal wave of 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 of, of ableist messages that get be gets beamed into folks' heads, and so I don't blame uh, my old self, nor I blame people struggling with it. So the question is, you know, how do you extricate yourself from that? Um, you know, it was really for me a life, a lifelong journey up to this point. I'm 43 years old, almost 44. Um, you know, there were seeds planted along the way, and and, and listeners, I, I I hope you can be those uh, tend tend the garden this way and plant these seeds in the people you care about. You know, one of the most important seeds was was my mom. You know, my mom was uh, you know quite a character. You know, she she's like. Uh, on a good day in high heels, she's like 4'11", you know, on her tippy toes. She has a very high-pitched voice like like Minnie Mouse, and she curses like a truck driver. And if you were a teacher doing wrong by her son, you did not want cursing Minnie Mouse in your office, you know. But that's where she was every day, you know. How did we know she was in that office? Well, we knew she was there because every dog in the neighborhood was running away, right? Like only, only bats could hear her <laughs> high-pitched obscenities. Uh, and my mom fought for me, you know, she didn't fight just for my right for services. You know, services are about making the, yeah. the, the, the square peg fit the hole. My mom That's fought right. for something yeah. bigger. She fought for my right to learn differently. You know, my mom would say to anyone who would listen, she would say, if my son doesn't learn the way he's taught, you should teach the way he learns. Now, I'll admit that's a paraphrase mm. because when my mom said it, there were a whole bunch of F-bombs <laughs> that I went out right there. Yeah, but that yeah. idea of it's not you, it's it's them. And it's not you who should change, but the environment around you, that was planted early. Uh, and if you are out there as a teacher, parent, whoever, uh, uh, plant that seed, plant that message, plant that idea uh, in, in the people that you care about uh, right now. Yeah. In terms of um, talking about people – sometimes just not fitting the environment. I, I remember this uh, quote I heard from a stand-up comedian. It was from a TV show. I was just watching an interview. I wish I would have remembered it, uh, the, the name of it and who the comedian was, but it was a comedian who was talking about uh, them having, quote-unquote having, we'll get to the language in this, ADHD. And the interviewer was really prescient, and the interviewer said something like, well, how can you have ADHD and do an hour-and-a-half set? 
and remember the jokes and kind of remember where you're going and, and do all that. And the comedian, without skipping a beat, said, oh, it doesn't, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have problems then. It's only when I'm doing other stuff. It just, it, it just illustrates to me that change of environment uh, is often what helps, quote unquote, solve the problem that we thought the pro- where we thought the problem was with the individual. Yeah, there's, there's a great quote. Uh, I mean, I, I, first of all, how, how can you do an hour and a half comedy set without having ADHD? <laughs> you know, good luck, normal comic. Ain't gonna happen for you, right? Like, it is not 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 possible. Um, there's a great quote by a guy named Russell Barkley, and I love this quote because Russell Barkley um, is one of the most uh, start staunch advocates that ADHD is a deficit. No ifs, ands, or buts. You know, it is a problem Mm -hmm. in your brain, a problem in you. But even Russell Barkley, uh, and I quote, said, there is no ADHD when a child is playing video games. Okay, bro, how can the deficit be cured by Nintendo? You know, we can't can't have it both ways. And and, and, and what, what he admits there is, is what you insightfully surface, which is it's not something people have. It's something people experience in environments not built for their difference. And that sounds like maybe like rhetorical shuffling of deck chairs. But when we say somebody has ADHD, we put the problem in them. When we say that somebody experiences ADHD, we put the problem in the interaction between person and context. And that's fundamentally where the, where the problem lies. Uh, and that's not um, an insight that's exclusive to atypical brains. In fact, that notion of, of ability and subsequently disability being social constructs is a foundational notion of both the disability rights movement, but also the disability uh, theorists that are advancing a more nuanced, non-medical-based definition of what constitutes uh, human embodiment. And that idea of it's not the person, but the way the person is treated that enables or disables is foundational for us advancing change because it reframes the problem. The problem is not the person. The problem is the environment. And that means we should be spending our energy as advocates, um, as as professionals, not fixing the person, but fixing the context around the person. Yeah. Well, so then we have two words to deal with. We have, uh, we already touched on one, which is have, you have uh, ADHD. I, I love the idea of you experience ADHD. I think that's way more accurate to your point. But then there's the notion of disability. Um, it's a tricky word. So I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on the merits of either using the word disability or even the idea of diagnosing these learning disabilities in the first place. I think we, I think, um, cause I, I've, I've heard, I've heard two different sides of the story and I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic. Yeah, I think with we both. should parse those. I Cause I think that they're, 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 um, they're, they're, they're two streams that, that intersect and merge at some point, but it's important to, to, to put, put them into different buckets for a minute. So let's talk with this thing talk about this concept of, of, of disability as a whole. Um, you know, I claim membership in the disability rights movement. Um, I claim disability. I, I am somebody who has uh, been 
identified by uh, public systems as having a disability. I have been disabled by the practices of those systems, and I have been devalued because of uh, institutionalized ableism. In my case, the belief that uh, a valuable person can read and a valuable person can sit still. And if you are not uh, somebody who possesses those abilities, you are less than. So I claim membership in, in, in that political movement. Uh, I see use and utility in the concept of uh, disability as a social phenomenon, not as a medical reality. Uh, I see the disability rights movement um, really owning that and advancing that social construct point of view. And that's what I claim politically, meaning when I think about moving forward in the world, advancing um, a North Star of a more perfect union and a more inclusive society, uh, I use and advance those ideas. Uh, not my ideas in any way. The ideas of, of folks who fought for the rights of people with atypical brains and bodies well before me. Um, so I, uh, uh, I, I claim disability in that sense. Now, uh, I don't claim disability as being a property of somebody's body or mind, but as being a social reality. Uh, now, on the other side of the equation, you know, uh, other stream, the notion of, of diagnoses, because many of us come to uh, uh, a sense of, of uh, community, uh, a sense of, of pride and a sense of political action as a result of diagnoses. That's where the identity of disability comes from. And it's one of the unique challenges of this particular identity politic, right? Um, you're trying to uh, claim something that by definition was mediated by a medical model. And so how do you extricate yourself from that medicalization of your difference? And that's a particularly nuanced challenge uh, both theoretically uh, as we try to make sense of it, but also personally as you try to navigate it. So on the uh, 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 diagnosis side, uh, I fundamentally believe that um, we should have information about ourselves. You know, I think that the notion of, of having a, a name for my reading challenges, it's not that I'm dumb. It's not to your point that you said before that people didn't do uh, their job or try or my parents didn't read to me is because of a neurobiologically based difference. That means I struggle with reading. That's, that's uh, okay to say. Uh, and that's important to say beyond okay, because it gives us a different word. What I take issue with is why do we have to pathologize that difference? Um, we can very easily say that human beings have different capacities. Um, uh, as Martha Nosselbaum said, you know, there is no disabled child. There's children with uh, multiple capacities, uh, challenges, weaknesses, limitations. Um, the reason we have to claim pathology is because that's the only way to get help in public systems. And I think that that is a very nefarious uh, deal with the devil, 
You know, call yourself somebody with a problem. And that's the only way that you get individualized support. And in reality, we should be striving for a system that provides individualized support regardless of, 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 of one's diagnosis. We should be honest that there's great equity um, concerns about the system of diagnosis as a way to facilitate support. Uh, and we should also be honest about the way that um, diagnosis has been used to justify the correction opposed to the empowerment of somebody with a difference, both in my life, uh, in what may seem to be somewhat benign ways of remediating handwriting, remediating spelling, but in a more social, uh, broad context, um, in the uh, American eugenics movement that tried to exterminate or eliminate difference, because that's the logical conclusion when we decide to call different deficient, and not just deficient, but ultimately pathological, well, guess what? We should just get rid of difference. So I think we need to uh, navigate that uh, and aspire to an experience that names people's uh, biologically based limitations and challenges and ultimately builds a world that accommodates opposed to eliminates those differences. Yeah, I wonder if we're reaching a world that is actually much more, um, has the capacity to do that much more, especially that sort of individualization of, of things. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Sal Khan, the founder yeah, of Khan absolutely. Academy, but he wrote a, uh, he wrote a book a while ago yeah, called One book. World Schoolhouse. Um, yeah. And his argument or one of his arguments in that book, I think is really deceptive. It's almost deceptively subversive. He's saying that the power of things like video instruction, computer-based instruction is such that we might even be at a point where we no longer need to all be taught by the same teacher in the same room who has to teach the same way. Because if you have 30 kids in the same room, well, you have to kind of treat them all in a similar way. You can't, uh, as one person, uh, very easily differentiate to that extreme for 30 kids. It always struck me as a really deceptively radical point that I saw in that book. Um, and I wonder if we're getting to a world where we can more, where we can do that sort of individualization more and where we can put more power in the hands of kids themselves to help determine, okay, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. I don't, do you see any um, promising trends along those lines? I think that we, we have the opportunity to bring that world to fruition like any opportunity, it's going to be about the choices that we make, which are ultimately a reflection of our core values. And I'll take the moment that we're in right now as a good example. Um, because of the uh, disruption of education in the pandemic, uh, we are at uh, an inflection point or potential inflection point of acculturating ourselves to digital tools of experimenting with um, uh, alternative educational formats. Um, and the question is, are we going to try to recreate the old school in new school tools, or are we willing to challenge the fundamental assumptions of school? And unfortunately, one of the things that I am discouraged by in, in my conversations with educators and um, students in particular, uh, over the last nine months, I had a conversation with a group of students, 70 of them middle school, right before you and I started speaking. 
is how we've decided to just try to take the old school and jam it through a Zoom call. Um, and again, a part of that is just people doing the best they can do. I understand that. But a part of that is also a, a set of unnamed um, assumptions about what education should be uh, percolating in people's actions. Um, education beginning in the 1900s, um, compulsory education was about um, uh, making folks ready for the factory. I mean, that was the bottom line. Um, it was about, you know, turning out widgets and it was designed. The, the education system was designed around the current notions at the time of average and normal. Um, and, and we have yet to extricate ourselves from that sort of fundamental social purpose. So the tools are there. Sal Khan is right. You know, we can personalize education for young folks, but that personalization needs to be to a different end. It can't just be to make the round peg fit the square hole. It has to be to proliferate the uh, multitudes of shapes that we know are paradoxically typical. That has to be its goal. And that means that we need to challenge some deeply held assumptions about, um, about kids getting good at everything and maybe focus on them getting good at some things. Uh, we need to challenge some deeply held assumptions about um, what uh, uh, core competencies really lead to human thriving, different from success, right? Because success is a very pragmatic concept. Thriving is a very personal concept. And we need to be reverse engineering our practice with those answers in mind. And until we do that, until we really challenge some of those uh, deeply held uh, values, uh, we're just going to uh, uh, keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. Uh, and as the saying goes, that's the definition of, uh, of madness. And, um, and, and, and we are at that choice point, but it requires you know, folks to make a choice driven by different uh, fundamental values. I mean, the power of uh, the power of the the idea of normal is so strong. I I remember reading your book, The Short Bus, uh, when I was doing a graduate degree in special education, and I was teaching at the time under a conditional certificate. And I remember thinking, like, I sympathize with your points about wanting to really make sure that we allow kids to be different and we don't try to fit, you know, square pegs into round holes. But at the same time, I also remember the pull of being like, as a teacher in a classroom, this doesn't seem practical to me because, you know, I have so many kids. I have so much time. We have one uniform space. Uh, it, it's really hard to, to do that. So I, I recall the push and pull uh, when I was reading that book just in my brain. Uh, it's a powerful one, especially for teachers who are in classrooms who have that limited time and limited space and stuff like that. Well, and that's that's the that that's the 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 the, the shared common ground, and I'm optimistic about that. You ask me, in are there trends and things that I've seen that I'm optimistic about? And one of the things I am optimistic about is uh, a growing number of educators um, who say this ain't working, you know, it, it ain't working for students for sure. It's also not working for, for, for me. And this is not what I got in this business to do. And that may sound like the opposite of something to be optimistic about. Uh, but it is something to be optimistic about if 
we decide to realize that we're all on the same team on this, you know, that this is not student interest versus teacher interest. This is our interest. And that becomes a coalition. And a coalition is, is when, we, uh, when we build change. Uh, and I'm optimistic about the growing um, uh, ability to build a coalition, be- not just because of teachers' dissatisfaction with what was happening, but also what was uh, happening pre, uh, during COVID, but what's happening uh, pre-COVID. Uh, I'm also optimistic because of the number of different uh, student coalitions that are saying this doesn't work for me. You know, we have... Uh, gifted students uh, dropping out of high school at greater rates than students with special education needs. You know, we have suburban uh, schools like Stanford, like uh, Palo Alto High School, where uh, kids uh, uh, on the railroad tracks are taking their own life. Uh, It's not working. So um, the good news is uh, we can build a coalition that, that tries to demand real change when we realize that we are all in uh, the same place where a system built on the idea that we all should be the same doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So final question then for those people listening who are motivated by what uh, we're talking about and what they're hearing from you, um, what suggestions do you have? Again, kind of going back to if you have Jonathan's in your class and surely we do, um, what what kinds of things should they do? Small things, big things, uh, to make sure that students are able to flourish. Couple, couple of very concrete things that 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 we can do in whatever uh, situation we find ourselves working with young people. One, uh, commit yourself to uh, building a positive identity uh, in the young person that you are working with or care about. Uh, the number one thing I hear from young people, I heard it. 40 minutes ago before we started chatting, chatting from, from young folks um, in uh, the Antelope Valley here in Los Angeles, I hear that they think of themselves as stupid, crazy, lazy, defective, broken. They think of themselves as not different, but deficient. And uh, remediating, not the difference, but the deficit of self-concept is the first step towards change. And the path towards that change is about a positive identity when it comes to disability. Uh, a critique of disability as being inside of people, but being the outcome of a narrow environment. And ultimately, it's a critique of institutionalized and cultural ableism. Uh, we need to be saturating young folks with a message of empowerment and with images of positive disability experience in all of its forms. That's step number one. You know, step number two is to commit yourself to picking one thing that you can change, not in the person, but in the environment around the person. I know it can feel overwhelming as an individual teacher. You're not in control of the public policy. But you know what? You could put a a bunch of clipboards in the back of your class when school resumes in person and empower anyone who needed to pace to take notes to do so. That's what a teacher named Mr. Starkey did for me at Green Mountain High School. We can do these small things, which in reality are connected to a big thing and a big idea. And that's the environment must change, not the person. And last but not least, you know, we can 
challenge the deficit model that surrounds young folks with atypical brains and bodies. You know, you're, you're told constantly as a kid like me, what's wrong with you? You know what you don't hear much about? You don't hear much about what is right with you. We need a capacity capability model that uh, maps the strengths, gifts, and talents and interests of every single student we encounter. You know, I'm a writer today because of a teacher named Mr. R. Mr. R believed everybody had something right with them. He would ask every kid every day, hey, what are you good at? What are you good at? What are you good at? And he would ask me that question. And and I would say nothing, you know, because I was in IEP land. But that guy never gave up. And one day he came to me and he said, Jonathan, you are so good at telling stories. I think you could be a writer. I was nine years old. Nobody had ever said that to me before in my life. I looked right at Mr. R and I said, Mr. R, are you out of your goddamn mind? I can't spell, man. And the guy looked back at me and said, Jonathan, in my class, screw spelling. I'm here today because of him. So those are three very concrete things that I think each and every one of us can do, not just uh, for the young person that we care about, that matters, but it's what we can do collectively to challenge this tyrannical idea that there's a normal human being.